It's a joy and an honor and a privilege to be back here again along with my wife and my daughter. Thank you so very much for your hospitality. And uh, please uh, allow me to begin my message this morning by saying one big thank you. Uh, thank you for everything that you are and everything that you are doing. Uh, your reputation is starting to make its way all the way to Romania. And there are many people who are praying there for you. Uh, and there are many people there who are giving God's praise uh, because of your steadfastness. Uh, the fact that you are staying close and faithful to the Word of God because you are engaged actively into ministry. Uh, and wherever God opens a door and whatever opportunity God brings to you, you are walking through that. You are prayerfully considering that. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm here to encourage you to keep on keeping on. Uh, we know that it's not always easy. Uh, we know that very often the things that are around us, the world, the people, uh, the desires of our own flesh are going against us. Uh, but our encouragement is to keep on keeping on. Uh, we bring you greetings not only from Romania, but we bring you greetings from the European Union. Uh, very often people forget that Romania is just a nation within the European Union. Uh, and the things that are happening in the European Union, it's almost like you're reading the book of Revelation. Uh, perhaps you are following in the news and you're seeing uh, what's happening with the euro, the common currency, and some of the nations that have gotten into trouble. Uh, and now the talk is of an even greater union, or in other words, of an even greater control. Uh, where Brussels is trying to recreate the former Roman Empire, uh, trying to enslave the nations and make sure that those nations are there. Uh, and most importantly, that God's not part of it. Uh, as you know, a few years ago when the European Constitution was debated, they made sure that any kind of mention of any kind of allusion to God was going to be taken out. Uh, because the desire of the European Union leader is the same desire that men had when they were building the Tower of Babel. They were going to build a tower that's going to go up all the way to God and make a name for themselves. Uh, they want to make sure that they're going to come up with something that's very modern, that's something very unique, that has nothing to do with God. And that really is the desire. Uh, please pay, pray for Emmanuel University of Iradia because that's the mission field that God called us to work. Uh, and it's a very interesting ministry. Uh, perhaps the single greatest uh, thing to overcome ministering in Romania at Emmanuel University is the fact that we do not have instant gratification. Uh, we do not have the joys, and along with Samuel, we used to work way back when and a lot of humanitarian aid missions, and we did a lot of, a lot of orphanage work. Uh, today, we don't have that instant gratification. Uh, building men and women for the kingdom of God is a very long process. Uh, you work the hardest at laying down the roots, laying down the foundations, and it is very, very often that you get discouraged. Uh, very often, you're looking around you and you're saying, why am I doing it? As a matter of fact, this is the topic that I would like to bring before you this morning. Uh, and please forgive me, perhaps it's more meditation from my own heart. Uh, but I venture to say that some of you may be in the same situation. Perhaps you've been faithful to God for many, many years. Perhaps you've been doing the things that God called you to do for many years and you've been faithful. Uh, yet you're looking around you and you're seeing people who seem to be prospering much better than you. Uh, you're looking at the world around you and you're saying, you know, it's just not fair. Uh, there used to be a southern uh, uh, country song uh, that, that began, Lord, have you forgotten me? I've been praying to you faithfully. I'm not saying I'm a righteous man, but Lord, where are you? I thank God this morning for Psalm 73. 
and I'd like you to open your Bibles, and I'd like us to read Psalm 73, which is a very honest prayer. Uh, I think that if I were to be voicing the same thoughts by myself, uh, you would be looking at me very funny. And Pastor Samuel would be saying, you know, you're not really fit to be preaching at our pulpit because we are looking for godly men. Uh, we're not looking for men that have those kind of thoughts. Uh, we don't want individuals who be looking like it. So that's why I'm going to be using Asaph this morning uh, and his prayer uh, as a meditation for all of us who may be tempted to think that living a Christian life, that sacrificing for our Lord and Savior may not be worth it. That we may be doing it in vain. You know, Asaph was a religious man. Uh, he was the worship leader during David's time. Uh, most likely, he spent most of, of his time in church. Uh, the people that he's talking about are not necessarily the heathens. They're not the Philistines that were over yonder on the other side of the border. They were the individuals who would come and worship alongside with all God's people. These are the people about whom Asaph writes. And please look in your scriptures, Psalm 73, and with your uh, uh, permission, I'm going to read the whole psalm. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens of common men. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquities. The evil conceit by their, uh, by their minds knows no limits. They scoff and they speak of malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongue takes possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up water in, uh, in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered a sanctuary of God. Then I understood the final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery grounds. You cast them down to ruins. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakens, so when you arise, O Lord, you will des despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brood beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me to your glory whom have i in heaven but you and earth has nothing i desire besides you my flesh and my heart may fail but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever those who are far from you will perish you destroy all those who are unfaithful to you but as for me it is good to be near god I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. Amen. What a wonderful prayer. What a sincere prayer. I mean, have you ever felt like Asaph? Have you ever felt like you're doing things in vain? 
Have you ever felt that God might have forgotten you? That God may not be richly rewarding you? This morning, I'd like to pose before you four questions that I'd like us very quickly to answer together. And question number one is, why do we slip? Why do we Bible-believing, Bible-reading Christians have those kind of thoughts? Why do we slip? And number two, why does God allow those kind of unfair situations? Because let's be honest, those are real situations. They're not make-believe. They're not dreams. We do see the wicked prosper. We do see people who ought to be punished that are prospering. Third question is, what is God up to? How is God working? What's his master plan behind the scenes? And I strongly believe that if we understand his master plan, we will gain that peace within our hearts. We are going to have a calm spirit. And the fourth question, what should we do to prevent from slipping again? Perhaps there are some of you here who've never been tempted like Asaph and myself and others. Uh, well, pay attention because the Word of God is teaching us what can we do that we may never go into that direction. So the answer to the first question is, why do we slip in our Christian walk? Well, there's really three things that the text teaches us here. Uh, the very first one you'll find, it is right up there in verse 3. And that is envy. Now, I, again, this is a very harsh word, and we don't normally talk about it on Sunday morning because we're good Christian folks. We don't necessarily envy, but we do. Uh, the Romanian version actually has a much milder, more kind of wicked uh, uh, word in there. It talks about, uh, uh, I look with gene. That's the, the exact phrase. I'm looking at it, and, and I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, I, I wish I could be like those guys. I think that many Christians today, especially in the Western world, and we're seeing it a lot in Romania, are buying in to non-Christian software, to non-Christian values. We're looking at the things that they value and we say, well, you know what? We ought to value the same kind of things. I mean, if you look at what the psalmist is talking about, what in his mind are wordy things are the things of the world. Now, again, very interestingly, because he talks about envying people who are overweight. Uh, that wouldn't happen today. Uh, most of us look at people who are overweight and we say, well, we hope we're going to lose some weight. But in those times, that was a sign of somebody who was prosperous. Somebody who had lots of food. It's the equivalent of somebody who today has a bigger house than you. Somebody who has a nicer car than you. Somebody who's been able to go on more cruises and more vacations than you. Somebody who has a nicer iPhone than you. So even though we're Christians, even though we're coming to church, even though we're going to the routines, very often we're looking at those people and we're saying, man, don't they have the life? I mean, look at them. They got everything. Look at them, they don't get sick. Look at them, their kids are okay. They got into great universities. Everything is wonderful. And whether we admit it or not, whether we articulate it or not, we too are envious. The second thing that happens is we start looking at ourselves with self-pity. We're looking at us and we're saying, in vain. Look at verse 13. Very interestingly, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Uh, this also leads me to believe that there's somebody there who has some messed up theology. Because very often we are given into a commerce mentality. We think that if we are going to be good before God, God for sure is going to be good to us. I mean, isn't that fair market practice? 
Isn't that good business? Isn't that normal? I mean, I've cleaned my heart. I've kept myself away from iniquity. I've really done all the right things. Shouldn't God be rewarding me? And if you read your scripture properly, the answer is not always. Now, let me tell you, that's some tough theology for us to swallow. That's why, unfortunately, all around us, we see a lot of people who are teaching heresies. And they're talking about the fact that if you are truly faithful to God, for sure, guaranteed. I mean, this almost sounds like an insurance salesman. A guarantee that you're going to have everything that you desire. You're never going to be sick. You're never going to be poor. You're never going to lose your job. So here's Asaph who's feeling sorry for himself. He's looking at his own life and he's saying, woe is me. If you study in the Holy Scripture, every time men and women of God have given into self-pity, they always got themselves into trouble. Remember Elijah? Oh God, I am the only one left. Let, let me tell you how fortunate you are to have me as a prophet. Everybody left you. Everybody just went their wicked way, and here I am, the only one. And let me tell you else, uh, what else, God. They're trying to kill me too. I mean, you're going to be left without prophets. I mean, I don't know how to tell you, God, but you ought to have an emergency council meeting because there's a problem. And God looks at Elijah and says, no, no, don't you worry. Don't you worry about that, Elijah. But self-pity is something that comes in and it ingrains in us. The third aspect of people who slip away are people who are starting to doubt. People are starting to doubt. You're, you're looking at it and saying, wait a minute, can I really trust Scripture? Is God really good all the time? And let me tell you something. This happens to the best of us. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist, that great man who preached before Jesus Christ, the, the preaching of repentance, who said, here is the Lamb of God. When he's in jail, when Herod's about to chop his head off, he sends word to Jesus and says, tell us, are you the one or should be we waiting for somebody else? If you're taking notes, please put an asterisk next, next to this uh, uh, particular issue because this is Satan's favorite tool. In the Garden of Eden, the, basi the basic message that Satan told Eve was, you know what, you cannot really trust God. You know, there, there's this tree over there, and God told you not to touch it, not to eat it. But really, what God's trying to do, God's trying to keep away, keep you away from lots of joy, lots of happiness. And, and th that's God's plan. God's a bad God. There's all kinds of happiness, and there's all kinds of fulfillment, but really, he doesn't want you to have any of it. He's a bad God. You ought to doubt God's word. And that's exactly what was happening with Asaph. And unfortunately, that's what I see in my own life. And that's what I think I see in the lives of many, many Christians. We begin with envy. We're looking in the wrong direction. We're having the wrong software, the wrong value system. Then we're looking at ourselves and everything that we have is just rags. And we're not worth it. And we're in the worst situations. And we have the worst of houses. And we have the worst of clothing. And we have the worst of everything. And then we begin to doubt. We begin to look at Scripture and say, is it really true? Yeah, I know it's true in most cases, but is it really, really true? As I was reading this psalm, I was asking myself a very tough question. And I think that the Bible and God 
encourages us to ask tough questions. And, and the question was, why does God allow these kind of unfair situations to happen to us? Let me tell you something. I, I'm not just speaking this out of theoretical ideas. Uh, in the month of February of this year, my sister-in-law, uh, the, brother of, uh, the, the wife of my brother, who's the mother of six kids, the oldest is 14, the youngest is nine months old, was diagnosed with stage four brain cancer. Doctor said if she makes another five years, it's a miracle. And as I, we were sitting there, we were saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. She's a godly lady. She's been bringing up her kids. She's been homeschooling the kids. They've been at home, and she's been faithful. I've known her since we were little kids back in Romania. Why would God allow such a thing to happen? Why is God allowing bad things to happen to good people? You know, this is a question that keeps many people away from the church. There's a lot of people who are saying, wait a minute. I cannot, I cannot serve a God who would allow such atrocity happening to an innocent person. So why does God allow those kind of things? I'll tell you why. Because God hates hypocrites more than we do. Because God believes strongly in testing our faith. You know, Sunday morning is great, especially if you're a Park Hills Baptist. I mean, you, you folks are so friendly. I mean, it's just so wonderful. It's so easy to be a Christian on Sunday morning, isn't it? I mean, there's coffee and there's donuts. There's excellent music. I mean, there's friendly folks. This is easy. And on Sunday morning, we're all tempted to say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, we believe in Jesus. Everything that God says here, I believe, I internalize, I take it for myself. And then God comes to us and says, oh yeah, prove it. The old Romans used to say, a life that's not tested, it's not worth anything. A few examples, but best example that we know is Job. Uh, if you read the first two chapters of Job, uh, basically what the conversation between the devil and God is, the devil coming to God and saying, you know your servant Job, the one that you're bragging with, okay, the real reason why he is serving you is because you've blessed him. Uh, God, let me tell you something. You do not have loyal subjects. All you have is mercenaries. You pay him well, they'll serve you. And I believe that the devil says something similar for you and about me. When they have a conversation about me, they're saying, oh yeah, Sebastian, oh yeah, he moved to Romania, he's a faithful servant. Ah, you're right. Oh yeah, right. So God, every once in a while, has to prove whether we truly are faithful sons and daughters of the king or whether we're mercenaries. Are we truly in love with God and will serve him no matter what? Or are we just in it for whatever benefits comes along? And God tests us. And his favorite, one of his favorite instruments is silence. I mean, God is just silent. We ask him, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? And God doesn't say anything. I mean, read the book of Job. It's, it's an incredible reading. Throughout the entire book, God does not give one explanation. And you would say as a normal human being, God, at least tell me why, and I'll be satisfied. And God says nothing. God tests us through his silence. Second thing that God tests us with is through his delayedness. I don't know if, I don't know if you noticed this, but God is always late. Is that, is that true in your life? Because certainly it's true in my life. 
Remember in the New Testament, somebody sent word to Jesus and says, Lazarus, your real good close friend is about to die. Please come quickly and heal him. What did Jesus do? The Bible says he stuck around for two more days. He didn't do anything. He was late. God always seems to be late because that's really a test. The worst example in all of Scripture is King Saul in the Old Testament. If you look in 1 Samuel, you see King Saul who loses his patience. And God tells him very clearly, do not go to war until you have the prophet coming in and bringing the sacrifice. And once the prophet gives the sacrifice, you can go ahead and go to war. And Samuel the prophet is not late one day, it's not late two days, it's late five days. So finally Saul says, okay, we've we got to take matters into our own hands. Bring the sacrifice, and I'm going to bring the sacrifice, and we're going to take care of this, and we're going to go to war, because you know what? The end justifies the means. It's okay. I mean, I, I, what I wanted was a good thing. I wanted to bring the sacrifice before the Lord. And Samuel looks at him and says, you missed it, because God tested you. Uh, th there is a verse in the Scripture, and, and, and the people who experience God's testing the most uh, were the Israelites, especially in the Old Testament, especially as they wander in the wilderness. Please turn with me real quickly, and I just want to read a couple of verses from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And, and these are specific and very important verses, first of all, because they're in Deuteronomy, and they're kind of like the conclusion that Moses has after four years of, of wandering in the wilderness. But they're even more importantly because these are the words that Jesus used against Satan. So please read, uh, uh, look uh, together with me verse 2 and verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for 40 years to humble you and to, what does it say in your Bible? Test you. To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And please look at verse 3 because this is the key. This is the clincher. He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your father had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is the essence, folks. God is testing us, and the question that he's posing before us is, will you be choosing the material or the spiritual? Are you most interested in the things that you see or are you most interested in the things that you do not see, the things of the soul? This is our single greatest tempta temptation. This is what was uh, Asaph's problem. He was looking at all the seen things. He was seeing all, looking at all, all the material things. He was looking at people who was prospering because of money. He was looking at people who had fame and popularity. He was looking at the world's values. And again and again and again, when God wants to test his children, when God wants to cleanse his children, these are the choices that he gives us. Will you be going for the material or will you be choosing the spiritual? When the Lord Jesus Christ overcame the devil's temptation, that was the clincher. The devil came to him and said, listen, you've been fasting for 40 years. You must be famished. You're starved. You're going to die unless you get some bread. So why don't you just take these stones and turn them into bread? It's very simple. And Jesus said, no. The flesh, the material, that's second place. First place, first place is the spiritual. That's what's most important. I honestly believe that this is the reason why God allows horrible things to happen. 
to teach us his value systems, to teach you that this body, this body that we invest so much into, that we take care of and we spend so much money on, this is not the most important. What's most important is the soul. Last week, we were spending with my brother and my sister-in-law, and this is, we had such a wonderful time of fellowship, and I was so encouraged by my sister's faith when she looked at me and said, you know what? What I have is not the worst thing that can happen to a person in the world. You know, stop crying because of me. Why don't you start crying about all the lost people who are going to spend eternity in hell? That's the real tragedy. That's the real crisis. That's what you should be pitying. Not somebody who has problems in, in, in their body and sooner or later we're all going to die, but somebody who has problems in their soul. Somebody who has an unhealed soul. That's the real danger and that's the lesson that I believe God is trying to teach us. So how does God work? If you look in the, in the psalm, I, I, I love it, the turning point. The turning point, if you go back to Psalm 73, is, is as uh, Asaph is talking about, when I tried to understand all this, in verse 16, I was oppressed till I entered the sanctuary of God. We have a different perspective the minute that we see things from God's perspective. We have a theological view. Unfortunately, Western Christianity talks a lot about how, you know, theology is not important and, you know, scripture is not all that important and how, you know, really what matters, let's find the lowest common denominator. Uh, no, folks, theology matters because theology has to do with the knowledge of God. I hear people all the time, well, I don't think that a good God would let people go to hell. Oh, yeah, where'd you get that from? You get that from your own flesh. You're certainly not getting it from the scripture. Because the scriptures clearly teaches what God is like. And unfortunately, many of us are trusting their own feelings to know what God is like. And really, what God is like is a creature of our own imagination. Now, folks, Asaph had a change in perspective the minute that he entered into God's sanctuary. And when he started looking things from God's perspective, this is the single greatest prayer that I have for the Christians of Romania, the Christians in, of, of Austin, Texas, is to be looking at the world, not through the world's software, but look at it through God's perspective. You know, early in the psalm, Asaph was looking at all these people, and he was envying them, and he was saying, boy, they have it good. It's interesting how his perspective changes. Uh, pay, pay close attention to the psalm. All of a sudden, he sees them, and he starts feeling sorry for them. Like, oh my goodness, these people are in slippery places. These people, if somebody doesn't do something about it, if somebody doesn't tell them about it, they're going to fall. They're going to be wasted. Wow. They are truly the ones who deserve our pity. Not me because I don't have the big car or I don't have the big house or whatever. It is those people who are deceiving themselves. Folks, it is so crucial to understand this that there's many people who will go to church deceiving themselves. You know, churches are very, very interesting things because they are social gatherings. And if we are not careful, the social gatherings are going to turn into nothing more than just socials. You know, I need a platform for somebody to be listening to how good I speak. I, I need a platform for somebody to listen how good I sing. I need a platform to show off my brand new tie. By the way, do you like it? Isn't it wonderful? 
And it's such a danger for me to be using the church not as a place that I am getting God's perspective, but just as another worldly club. Well, we gather up and we take terms. Well, this week I'm going to be praised and applauded, and next week it's going to be your turn, and the following is going to be your turn. And unfortunately, many, many churches are nothing more than just clubs where people basically are stroking each other's egos. So this Sunday is my turn and my friends, and next Sunday it's your turn and your friends, and that's really what it's church about. No. Church is the place where we see God's perspective and we see things how they really are. So Asaph is seeing these people who are deceiving themselves, who continuously, they come to the temple and they're giving their burnt offering and they're saying, oh no, look at them. Look at them. He goes further and says, look where they're going to end up. They don't have eternity assured. That's the real crisis. Asaph is looking at them and he's saying, and when he's looking at himself, very interesting, verses 21 and 22, it's like, boy, I was thinking like a worldly person. I was like a beast. I was foolish. I, I, I was not thinking right. I mean, you hear repentance there where Asaph is saying, God, please forgive me because I looked at those people with envy. Please forgive me because what I wanted, I wanted a little bit of what they're having. Lord, that's not what it's about. It's about me trying to tell them what I have because I have the truth. Lord, I was like a beast. And the psalm ends in the most wonderful way through the sufficiency of God. One, one of the verses that really, really uh, touched my life is verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Can I ask you a personal question? I, I know I'm a visitor, and, and I promise I, I won't be bothering you anymore. But is that true in your life? Is it true that on earth you desire nothing but God? Is God sufficient for you? I have to stay before you honest and say, that's not, that hasn't always been true in my life. Too many times, to my shame, I used to say, God plus a little something. God plus a little paycheck. I mean, you, you got to live on something, don't you? Uh, God plus, uh, you know, uh, uh, good health. Then life would be good. God plus something. Please pay attention to verse 25. And if you, if you want to circle it, that's the key verse in the whole psalm. In this earth, God is sufficient. God is sufficient. And I believe that this is where God wants to lead each and every one of us. Where we get to the point where not something outside, not something within us, but just God alone is sufficient on this earth. I pray that that may be true for me. I pray that that may be true for you. I pray that that may be true for my sister-in-law. Just because she had a victory last week doesn't guarantee the next week or the week after she's not going to be tempted. Doesn't mean that she's not going to be asking the age-old question, why, Lord, why? I pray that we, are, we will all remember the sufficiency of God. On this earth, if you have God, you have everything. You are all set. You don't need anything else. How can we prevent from slipping again? Well, it's very simple. Number one, watch your heart for envy. Watch your heart for envy. Stop comparing yourself with others. That's so difficult because we live in a materialistic society. 
We are bombarded by Hollywood. We're bombarded by marketing messages and commercials. They're all telling us that we should be doing it because everybody's doing it. I mean, there is a new uh, 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 field out there, and because this is my, my area of expertise, called stealth marketing. So uh, agencies, you probably have seen the movie Keeping Up with the Joneses, uh, that, that, that really plays on that. Where the entire marketing science has to do with trying to entice you, telling you that your life is insufficient. What you need is what they got. As Christians, we need to check our hearts against envy. Do not let it get into your own life. The only person that you need to be comparing yourself to is yourself in God's plan. Yourself in accordance to the gift that he has bestowed upon you. So when I wake up every morning, I don't want to be looking to the left or to the right at my next door neighbor or a colleague of mine. I need to be looking at what God has placed in me in terms of gifts and what kind of plan God has for me. And I need to be asking myself, how am I doing? Am I really doing well? That's a motivating factor. I love God so much because I want to become a better Christian for his glory. So stop being envious. Number two, check your thinking against the scriptures. I'm so glad every time I come here to to, to hear that you're reading the scriptures. That you're not afraid to just sit there and listen to a whole chapter because that's the secret. Not human emotions not human traditions, not anything else but the scripture. We do not have anything higher. It is the word of God. That's what cleanses our minds. Folks, all week long we're bombarded. You turn on the television, you drive down the freeway, you see all the commercials. We we are bombarded by a message that's hostile to the scriptures. We need to continuously recheck our thinking with the scriptures. And the third one and last one, Be sure that God is sufficient. Be sure that God is sufficient. If something is happening in your life that you do not think makes sense, trust God's goodness sufficiently where you say, Lord, I don't understand this, but I trust that you're good. I trust that you have a plan. I trust that there's something behind it. Right now, I don't know it. And Lord God, you are God. I am not. You do not owe me an explanation. I'm willing to submit. And that's where freedom comes from. That's where true joy, that's where true happiness comes from. I pray that God may give us that peace. I pray that God gives us that peace that surpasses all understanding and regardless what happens around us, regardless of who has more than us, who's doing better, who's more prosperous than us, we have our peace and we are properly anchored in the Lord. If we do so, we will never waver in our faith. May God bless us. Amen.